Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, as most of you know, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, which will be coming Brown Harris Stevens in a couple of weeks. And as you know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of this amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its energy. What makes that New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history in New York, about half of them. We've talked about women activists in the city and the women's suffrage movement, African-American history, the city's LGBT and gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've also looked at the history of punk and opera. Uh, We've also looked at our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight is one of those special programs. It's a program about New York's most iconic hotels. And for any of you who might not know what they are, they are the Plaza and the Waldorf Astoria. And it's a special treat because my two favorite regulars are guests on the show tonight. The show's special consultant, David Griffin, and Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. First, we'll get to David. Uh, David Griffin is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David's Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. His latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. That's right, everyone. Every single building from Washington Square Park right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, I keep saying a hearty welcome back. I don't know what other words to use by a hearty, but you know, your welcome is is always hearty. Welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. Always glad to be here. Um, you're a regular, and some of our listeners know your background, but as we still have growing numbers of listeners, some don't. Um, you're from the metropolitan area, but not New York itself, at least not originally. No, I was uh, born and raised with my brother and two sisters um, out near Port Jeff on Long Island. And one of the first um, experiences we had with architecture as kids uh, was when we were costumed interpreters at the old Bethpage Restoration for the annual Restoration Fair. And Old Bethpage Restoration, for uh, listeners who are unfamiliar with it, is a restored village, not unlike Colonial Williamsburg, of Dutch colonial and later buildings from Long Island. And we had the chance to sort of live in the village a bit, actually stay overnight in some of the older houses. And uh, it was really quite, uh, quite magical. And I think that and other similar experiences really sort of woke me up to uh, a real interest in American architecture, its history, how it developed, what it looked like, what its functions were. How did you become interested in architectural history, David, and specifically in the history of New York's architecture? 
Well, I mentioned the Old Beth Restoration, Old Beth Page Village Restoration, and then just growing up in and around New York City, we have such a wealth of buildings to look at and observe. I was always very interested in, you know, the, the older ones, the more ornate ones. And then as a kid, I think you can't help but really be uh, entranced by the very tall new buildings that were going up at the time. Uh, so I, I had a very broad sort of spectrum of things that seemed interesting to me. Uh, when I went to Vassar, I majored in art history and English. I had a double major and I focused on American architecture. And that's been a focus of my career through my adulthood. I'm going to ask you a little bit about your your current blog, Every Building on Fifth, a little later in the program. Um, first, I want to go to one of the most iconic hotels, not only in New York, but in the world, the Waldorf Astoria. Yes. Um, the Waldorf that we know now, by the way, everyone, it's uh, clo- been closed for a few years. They're doing a master renovation, um, similar to what happened uh, uh, at the second hotel. That's the subject tonight, the, uh, the Plaza. It's undergoing a massive renovation and will be brought back to market as a hotel, but also condos. Um Tell us about the original Waldorf Astoria, where it was, how it got started. And of course, we have to talk about the famous architect who designed the original hotel. And also, I want to hear a little bit about the family dispute that helped form the shape and the, and, and, and how the original hotel ended up being the way it was. Well, the original hotel now known as the Waldorf Astoria started as two separate hotels on Fifth Avenue, built by feuding relatives. Uh, the first hotel to go up was 13 stories, 450 rooms, the Waldorf Hotel, and it was designed by Henry Jane Hardenberg, who was the architect of the Plaza Hotel, which uh, Joyce will be speaking of next, and of the Dakota Apartments on Central Park West, the famous Victorian apartment building. Uh, it opened on March 13th of 1893. It was at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 33rd Street on the site where the millionaire developer William Waldorf Astor had his mansion. Now, William Astor was planning on moving uptown anyway, but he was also motivated to do this in part by a dispute with his aunt, Caroline Webster Skirmerhorn Astor. And he built the Waldorf Hotel next door to her house on the site of his father's mansion, uh, in part to annoy her and to block her light and fresh air. And she was a very sort of private uh, woman, and she thought a commercial establishment right next door was something that she detested. Uh, we have to understand. Well, you'd have to you'd have to be pretty pissed off with somebody to right. to want to spend that kind of money to build a building just to block their light in their air. Well, uh, he he did that. That was a it was a byproduct. This was a, a money making uh, prospect for him because he was able to charge much more for the building as a as a cleared site or something like that than he would have just as a house. So in a way, he was you know he was making some coin off of this. But the fact that she he knew she would be annoyed it. it it made him happy. Uh, the thing is, is that back then, um, until this time period, for many people, hotels were sort of insalubrious places. There were a couple respectable ones, of course, but most hotels were seen as places for transients, for salesmen, for commercial people, and for the sort of people who didn't have letters of introduction, so they couldn't stay with good families. They didn't know the people that they should know. They were the nouveau riche, or they were, you know, so... Gambling went on in hotels. A lot of drinking went on in hotels. Uh, so a hotel in and of itself was already sort of problematic. And a lot of people thought that uh, William Waldorf Astor had actually ruined the neighborhood when he put that hotel up. They're like, oh, my God, a ghastly commercial establishment. Uh, and he was the first to do so. So the hotel was built to the specifications of the founding owner, who was George Bolt. Uh, William 
Astor did not own the, uh, the Waldorf Hotel. And he owned and operated the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, which was a fashionable hotel on Broad Street, Philadelphia, uh, in Pennsylvania with his wife, Louise. Now, the Bellevue, I believe, was also designed by Henry Hardenberg. So this was a sort of a, an architect who was accustomed to. And uh, it was seen as a very respectable hotel. Bolt is also the man who commissioned a, the Bolt Castle in the Thousand Islands, which is now open uh, as, to, as a museum to the public. Um, the original hotel, as I said, it stood 13 stories uh, high, 225 feet, relatively narrow facade on Fifth Avenue, only 100 feet of facade on Fifth Avenue. The main entrance was actually on 33rd Street. Uh, the building was really ornate. It had a very complex roof line and highly ornamented balconies and bays, what was called the German baronial style. Uh, which Hardenberg also used for the Dakota. So if you want to sort of imagine what the building would have looked like, something like that, there are lots of, of, uh, of pictures of it. What was the public reception of the hotel when that thing went up? Was it was it, was it well received? What did what did the people think of its design? What did they think of it of it of it being where it was? Initially, it was highly negative. Uh, as I said, um, Astor's neighbors thought that he had really sort of, you know a disservice uh, by building something like that. Uh, it was called uh, Bolt's Folly and sometimes Astor's Folly. Uh, the general perception was that it had no place in New York City. People were like, why do we need such a, you know, one-eight over-decorated hotel? It's ridiculous. And uh, they also didn't like the location because businessmen thought that it was too far north for them. So, you know, most of business at this point was south of 23rd Street by quite a bit. Um, you know, finance was still really circulating around Wall Street. There wasn't the commercial aspect of Midtown that we know nowadays. So the thought that people would travel that far north in order to stay someplace just didn't seem to make sense. Well, with um, all the negativity, David, one would think that the hotel enterprise would be destined for a big flop, but it didn't flop, did it? It did not. And one thing that happened was that Bolt was very canny about this. He knew how to handle uh, sort of an upper-class clientele and develop it. He had done so in Philadelphia. So he decided the hotel would host a benefit concert for St. Mary's Hospital for Children, which was a huge draw. It was a very big charity during those times. Uh, and he did so on its opening day. So the hospital was the favorite charity of a lot of people who were on the social register, the, the really sort of like well-born families that lived up and down Fifth Avenue. And they came to pay $5 each for the concert and dinner at the Waldorf. $5 was a significant amount of money in those times. And they completely changed their mind once they saw how commodious the ballroom was and how beautiful the interior decoration was. And all of a sudden, it was no longer a businessman's destination. It was a society destination. And it became this kind of place where it's like, oh, you know, we can actually have a ball or a, a huge dinner or something that our own mansions might not be able to comfortably accommodate by using the Waldorf. Oh, you know, Cousin Trudy's coming to town. We don't really like her. Do we? Can't she just stay at the Waldorf? <laughs> so all of a sudden it became this place where people of high fashion were suddenly interested in entering it and kind of partaking of the amenities that were offered there. Poor Cousin that. Trudy. Yes, poor Cousin Trudy. But I think she probably ate very well, drank very well, dressed very well, and enjoyed her stay. Mm. And the hotel actually almost doubled in size, but after it was built, how did that how did that happen? Well, William Astor, uh, William Astor continued to feud with his aunt, um, but with Bolt's assistance, uh, 
his aunt's son, John Jacob Astor IV, managed to convince her to move uptown by building her a magnificent double chateau on Upper Fifth Avenue, uh, around where actually Tiffany's is now. Uh, so once she moved, John Jacob Astor was able to sell that house as well, and they constructed the other half of the Waldorf Astoria, and this was called the Astor Hotel. The two hotels were joined as the Waldorf Astoria, and they were connected by an alleyway between the two buildings. So the new building and the old building had an alleyway between them that was called Peacock Alley. It was walled with amber marble and with mirrors. Uh, it was sort of intended to recollect the uh, Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, and it was called Peacock Alley because people who dressed for dinner would occasionally check themselves in the mirrors as they walked from the staterooms into where the, the banquet was being held. So it was sort of like, you know, you were peacocking if you did that. Uh, sort of an interesting uh, phrase that entered terminology back around then. And this was at a time, probably in the 1890s, the first decade of the last century, where people just got dressed up to the hill. Like, Oh, yes. Uh, no, this was a very, very fashionable establishment. Oscar Shirky, Oscar of the Waldorf, was a very famous uh, maitre de hotel. And he was there from 1893 until 1943. That's 50 years of service. And it's during that time that the hotel also became famous for its food. Now, most hotels were not famous for their food. Most hotels were famous for having bad food. But um, he helped invent things like Eggs Benedict, Beale Oscar, Thousand Island Dressing, which was named after the location of the Bolt Estate uh, up in, in upstate New York in the, in the St. Lawrence River. And, um, yeah, so those things were sort of additions to the, to the fashionable menu and really kind of kept the place, kind of kept the place going. It faced a lot of competition in the early 20th century. All of a sudden, you had the St. Regis, you had the Knickerbocker, you had the Savoy Plaza, um, obviously the Plaza Hotel itself. Um, and by the 1920s, the hotel was sort of becoming dated. It was seen as too Victorian. It was seen as sort of overdone. It wasn't a Beaux-Arts style or an Art Deco style like some of the other um, hotels that I've mentioned. And the other thing was, was that 34th Street actually was no longer the center of high society. It had moved up to Central Park. So it became sort of seen as a kind of outdated place. Um, it did close, um, uh, and it was sold to the developers of the Empire State Building in May of 1929 and demolished that year for the construction of the skyscrapers that we all know now stands on that particular site. So. Mm. Well, well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David, uh, David Griffin of Landmark Branding, about where the Waldorf Astoria wound up after it left uh, the site of the uh, Empire State Building. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are 
you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York in our episode about two of New York's iconic and quintessential New York-centric hotels, as I call them, the Waldorf Astoria and the Plaza. My first guest is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David's also the show's special consultant. David, how did you get started with Landmark Branding? How did you start the business? Well, I was always interested in writing about architecture and did so for a number of magazines and websites. And then when the downturn of 2008 occurred, uh, a lot of freelance work really sort of dried up. So I thought, well, I still want to continue to do so, and I'd like to do it professionally. At that point, I was working as an arts consultant for Thomas & Associates, which is a very well-known firm at the time. Um, But I started branching out around 2013 or so and founded the business as a sort of a side project. And then switched over full time in 2017 and have been working and writing with architects, developers, designers, and other people um, ever since then. And Landmark Branding um, does what specifically in your main line of business? Well, we do marketing support. And uh, basically, that's very varied. It's everything from creating listings, bios, uh, team profiles, and other types of writing, um, assisting with website content, assisting with blog content. Uh, assisting with things like podcasts and films. I've actually done a series of film projects with uh, some broker clients of mine. A lot of fun doing that. A lot of uh, VIP events, special tours of things like that. Uh, I work as a director of referrals um, for um, Compass. And uh, I work with Vicki Barron there, who is a, a great client and a, a wonderful person uh, to, to work with. Uh, also with Jennifer Wallace, developing the Room at the Top series, which is towards the historic skyscrapers. Um, obviously, that's a bit on hold now because of COVID, but we are hoping uh, we're hoping uh, she and I should come up with a virtual version of that that we think would be very interesting. Developing a book project on the history of the penthouse apartment. Uh, there will also be samples of penthouses. And uh, the blog that you mentioned, Every Building on Fifth, I am returning to it with some updated photos and new information. It, 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 it's quite a tome. It's uh, uh, There are how many hundreds of entries on every building on 5th? Well, there's at least 500 entries. Wow. And it's about 390 buildings because some of the entries are articles or profiles of people or projects. Uh, it really was remarkable. It took me years to do because I had to photograph the buildings myself. So it was sort of like, you know, find the time to go down, walk around, take pictures I knew I needed and continue on. But it was really, it was quite eye-opening. And uh you know, Fifth Avenue is an avenue that sees a certain amount of permanence and a certain amount of change. It's interesting to see it as a sort of a bellwether of New York overall. 
Well, hopefully, except for one big black building on Fifth Avenue, but we won't talk about that one tonight. Um, uh, and how can people find out about your company and also uh, your blog? My website is landmarkbranding.com, and the blog is linked there under Blog is Every Building on Fifth. Uh, I can also be reached at uh, dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. That's uh, D-D-R-I-F-F-I-N. And I'm always happy to review any type of queries or questions that people might have. Well, in case anyone was wondering when I mentioned that big black building on Fifth, I was not referring to BlackRock, CBS headquarters. That's on Sixth Avenue. Right. But we, but, but we might get to uh, a subject of that building a little bit later on today. So the Waldorf Astoria moved to a new location. Um, it's now on 50th Street and Park Avenue. Yes. Um, how did the owners acquire the land for the hotel on the site? Well, the land for the hotel was formerly owned by New York Central Railroad, and they operated a power plant for Grand Central Terminal on the site. Um, They no longer needed the plant. They wanted to help develop the area. As we all know, the railroad lines had been sunk beneath Park Avenue at that point in order to kind of help clear that space for entirely new types of zoning. So fashionable residential architecture was the thing that was lining the streets at that time. The office buildings that we're familiar with that go from Grand Central all the way up to 59th Street were a later addition. Uh, But the Waldorf Astoria was really positioned to be at what people thought was now the new center of New York City. Well, such an illustrious hotel, um, because when it was built, it was the biggest hotel that had ever been built. Um, It had to have a really splashy opening, even though it was during the Depression. Well, when they started building, they felt things were fine. And then, of course, they weren't. Um, The uh, building opened up on October 1st of 1931. Uh, It was also the tallest hotel at the time, in addition to being the largest. It covers the entire block. And uh, it consisted of about 100 suites, about one third of which were leased as private residences. A lot of people actually did live full time at hotels during that period. So on opening night, President Herbert Hoover actually gave a radio broadcast from the White House uh, where he sort of identified the Waldorf as a symbol of American business forging ahead in the Depression, uh, kind of a symbol of American civilization, uh, as well as architectural culture and engineering um, sort of a capability. And there were 2,000 people in the ballroom listening to the speech. However, ironically, by the end of the business day, the 2,200-room hotel only had 500 occupancies. And it really wasn't until 1939 that the Waldorf Astoria began to make a profit of any kind. It sounds like a similar story to the Art Deco Depression-era colossal building that replaced it, the yes, Empire State okay. Building, which also did not make make a profit, I think even until after the war, maybe in, in the late 40s. Yes, I think it was the late 40s that they really began to pick up. And prior to that, it was known as the Empty State Building to detractors. So, But yeah, the um, the original hotel really kind of threw itself into its job as a, as a place for very glamorous dinner parties. And that was sort of a place to go and to have functions. So in some ways, the Waldorf functioned a lot for New York City and its residents, even more so than as a hotel, uh, just as the original had down on 34th Street. And um, so during the 1930s and 1940s, the guests also had a, a lot of entertainment choices. There was the very famous, very elegant Starlight Room, the roof, rooftop nightclub. And the Waldorf Astoria Orchestra was very famous. Uh, musicians such as Glenn Miller would play there. So there were reasons to go actually out and use the hotel and spend money 
that weren't necessarily tied into expecting people to stay the night. Mm. Well, let's talk about the hotel's construction, David. And I've been reading up about it. It sounds a little similar, though not quite the same scale as the Empire State Building, as far as the amount of of, of materials they had to bring in. You know, flat car, you know, railroad car after railroad car, stone, dirt. You know, how what was the construction of this of this colossal hotel like? Well, it was. It is probably one of the largest projects of its time in New York City, and you know it's not anywhere near as tall as the Empire State Building, but I believe it actually covers a slightly larger footprint. So it was designed by the architect Schultz and Weaver, who were noted for their Art Deco buildings, and um, it involves something like 200 railroad cars of 800,000 cubic feet of limestone for the building's facing. There were 27,000 tons of steel for the skeleton superstructure and over 2,500 million square feet of terracotta and gypsum block for decoration purposes. Uh, The towers themselves are brick-faced, and oddly enough, this led many people to believe that the builders ran out of money. They were expecting it to be limestone all the way up. Uh, In fact, they'd always been intended that way, and if you look at a lot of the Art Deco Expressionist architecture, even prior to the crash in 1929, they made a lot of use because they felt the pattern surfaces helped break up the monumentality and make them more active. Like the Chrysler Building, for example. Yes, the Chrysler Building, a lot of works by Robert Walker, um, a lot of works that you see that you know have stone bases are uh, patterned brick as they rise further up. I want to ask you about a little uh, uh, appointment, not so little. That famous clock in the Waldorf, it actually predates the construction of the hotel. How did it get to the Waldorf? Where did it come from? What's its well, history? The lobby, the, the clock that Jeff is speaking about, for those unfamiliar with it, is an incredible piece of Victoriana. It actually looks as if it came from the original Waldorf Astoria, and uh, it, it did. <laughs> but it wasn't actually designed for the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, it's 4,000 pounds of bronze, and it was built by Goldsmiths, which was the leading sort of um, watchmaker in London at the time for the 1893 World Columbia Exposition in Chicago. And it was commissioned by Queen Victoria herself. She wanted to sort of create a project that had her stamp on it, and this was the one that she selected. And that's one of the reasons why, although the base, which is octagonal of the park, is decorated with commemorative plaques of presidents such as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, they knew they were playing, in other words, to an American audience. It also represents Queen Victoria. It is talked by a replica of the Statue of Liberty that is not part of the original clock design. Remember, this is a British firm. They went to selected a French project to kind of cap <laughs> off their masterpiece. Uh, that was something that was given to Mr. Astor from the French government um, in addition for services that he had kind of performed for French citizens. And uh, it was an addition to the original design. And when Queen Victoria heard that her clock had been desecrated with that French statue, she actually tried to buy it back, and he wouldn't sell it to her. So it is the only piece of decor from the original decorative program, um, and again, it was purchased after the fact, to make it to the Art Deco building. So it actually is this kind of amazing Victorian monument. Well, speaking of international relations of one sort or another, there was some considerable there's some considerable diplomatic history at the Waldorf, isn't there? Yes, there were tremendous numbers of um, uh, sort of important people, important things that happened, particularly during the Cold War. Um, 
the Waldorf Astoria played a considerable role in international relations during the immediate post-war years. Uh, from November 4th to December 12th, 1946, probably the most notable of these was the Big Four Conference, which was held in the apartment of uh, Georgine Bloomer on the 37th floor of the Towers between the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union to discuss the future of Eastern Europe, how they were going to kind of manage that. Um, from its inception, the Waldorf was always popular with foreign dignitaries of every kind. Uh, the Viceroy of China stayed in the hotel in 1896, in the original hotel, and feasted on 100-year-old eggs that he actually brought with him. Uh, but um, other guests at the more uh, modern building include Princess Astrid of Norway, uh, Queen Fabiola of Belgium, King Hussein of Jordan, Prince Rainier and Princess Grace of Monaco, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands, King Michael of Romania, and Crown Prince Akihito and the Princess Makashiko of Japan. Um, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip stayed at the hotel during their first visit to America in 1957. And um, the Queen and the Prince Consort always stayed at the Waldorf whenever they passed in New York subsequently. I'm guessing they stayed in the presidential suite where they were there. <laughs> I believe there was a suite named for them. It oh, was, really? Yeah, I don't think it was a presidential suite. I think there is a royal suite that was reserved oh, wow. for other members of the royal family. I wonder if it's nicer than the presidential suite. Uh, you know, one other interesting thing about, about uh, uh, diplomatic and, and international history at the Waldorf, uh, even the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls was touched by that hotel. Yes. In 1954, the Israeli statesman and archaeologist, Yegel Yadin, that's secretly with the Syriac Orthodox Archbishop, Mar Samuel, in the basement of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel to negotiate the purchase of four Dead Sea Scrolls for Israel for their uh, cultural library. The scrolls were kept in a vault at the Waldorf Astoria branch of New York's Chemical Bank. And at the request of the Israeli government, uh, the biblical scholar, Dr. Harry Or Orlinsky, examined their scrolls at the Waldorf and verified their authenticity. Yaden paid a quarter of a million for all four, which is actually something of a, a, a bargain, it sounds, these days, considering their historical importance. But yes, that all took place in the basement of the Waldorf Astoria. David, we have uh, about a minute left. Are there any lingering things in our culture that stand out to you that we have the Waldorf Astoria to, to thank for? Well, Waldorf salad is probably the one that most people are familiar with. It's a dish of grapes, celery, apples, and a, a mayonnaise-based dressing. I, you can use Thousand Island. Some people add things like chicken or turkey to it. Uh, and it was created, it was sometimes called green salad because all of the components of these green grapes and green apples were green. And it was seen as a kind of a very light and elegant way to have a lunch. So that's, that's probably the thing most people think of. For me, um, one of my uh, favorite moments at the Waldorf was attending the Viennese Opera Ball, uh, which was held at the Waldorf until its closure in 2017, modeled after the one in Vienna and held in February. Uh, the Grand Ballroom was the traditional location because it was the only ballroom in New York City big enough to accommodate two horse-drawn carriages, which are traditionally incorporated into the ball program. So um, our mutual friend Richard Gabriel was leading the dance that evening, uh, it is one of the last white tie balls to be held regularly in New York. And it really gives you some insight into how the hotel works as a place for these incredibly grand functions. You know, thousands of people are attending, hundreds of people are dancing, uh, you know, full banquet services is given. There's a tans breakfast that goes on till 5 a.m. But you never feel like you don't know where you are. You never feel like there's not enough space. Uh, it really was a magical evening. 
Sounds like the out of the second act of Deflator Mouse by Strauss. Um, David, thank you so much. Uh, our first guest on this show on Rediscovering New York about New York's iconic and quintessential hotels has been David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is our show's special consultant, and you can read about his business and also about his blog, Every Building on Fifth, on www.landmarkbranding.com. Thank you, David. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with another regular on Rediscovering New York about New York's other iconic, amazing hotel. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on, excuse me, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. 
One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest tonight almost needs no introduction, but introduce her I will. Joyce Gold is a recognized expert and educator in New York history and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through her private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Joyce has published two guidebooks. One of them is From Windmills to the World Trade Center, a walking guide through the history of Lower Manhattan, and from Trout Stream to Bohemia, a walking guide through the history of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And if that wasn't enough, the New York Times recently called Joyce, and this is a quote, the doyenne of New York City tour guides, a level of recognition any tour guide not only would relish, but might even kill for. And we welcome back to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Joyce, welcome back. Thank you very much. Well, unlike David, you're not originally from New York. Where are you from? I am from a small, beautiful town in Pennsylvania, Hazleton, PA, in the eastern third of the state. I lived there through the eighth grade, and it was, we uh, lived in that part of the state through the eighth grade, and then moved to New York. So I've been here for a very long time. How did you get involved in the work that you do, specifically bringing New York's history to life for the people who were lucky enough to actually go on your tours? Well, you might say that it really started when I lived in Pennsylvania because my parents and I often planned visits to New York to see all the sites, but often we didn't, uh, we weren't able to make it. So I wanted to give people the city that in a way was just out of reach for me for all my childhood years. Uh, When we moved to New York, after a while, I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. One day I picked up a hundred year old history book of the city. It was about streets I passed every day going to work. And it changed my daily experience because everything started meaning something different to me, something new. I talked about the layers of time, uh, what the city was like over different years. And I was just hooked. Haven't stopped reading in all that time. Well, we're going to go to the Plaza Hotel a little bit further north from where the Fed is. By the way, everyone, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is in the financial district. It's on Maiden Lane. We're going to travel north to 59th Street. (coughs) Let's talk about the site of the Plaza Hotel, the famed Plaza Hotel. What was there before the Plaza went up? The Central Park was already designed, built, and was was there actually on on 59th Street and 5th Avenue. Yeah, Central Park was mostly uh, done in the 1860s. And uh, what was on the site of the present Plaza Hotel, first of all, was a skating rink. And then in 1890 was the first Plaza Hotel. So like the Waldorf Astoria, it's also had two structures with the original name. How did it get the name the Plaza? The Plaza is a pretty central, you know, it's like it, it, it intones something very central. Because uh, at at that time, uh, uh, the life of New York would not really have been that far north, would it have been? David talked about uh, it being, you know, focused more downtown. Well, uh, Central Park was what really brought a lot of people up to that uh, upper part uh, compared to Wall Street, upper part of the island. And so many people of means had, there was a lot of new money in the town. A lot of them had carriages 
And there were so many carriages that they had to wait before they could get onto the carriage roads of the park. And so that's the origin of the plaza. It was the area where the Central Park carriages waited. Now, the plaza that the hotel, picking up that name, uh, is is uh, the Grand Army Plaza. And it's grand because it's a nice size. And it also commemorates the Union soldiers of the Civil War. So it's on the plaza. It's one of the very few prominent buildings that have two, two, uh, two it's on a corner. And so they're celebrating being at the plaza by taking the name. Ah, I'm not to be confused with the famous Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn, uh, which in my mind is probably the most magnificent intersection in the whole city. But uh, be that as it may, um, the hotel that we have now on uh, as the plaza was not the original plaza. What was the original plaza hotel like? Something uh, McKinney and White were the second group of architects that worked on it, and. Um, it was a little away from where people were living, although that neighborhood was becoming, beginning to become the new hotel district of the city. Uh, investors found that they needed something bigger to make a profit. The head of Fuller Construction Company was one of the investors. The famous Betamillion Gates, who was a gambler as well as an investor. Uh, so they wanted something larger, and that's how the 18-story second plaza hotel opened on the site in 1907. Mm. And like the Waldorf, I mean, they too have so many parallels. It was started in the Gilded Age of the city. And actually, there was a little bit of a, uh, a not a sordid story, but uh, uh, an unfortunate side to the Plaza story, which was the property was foreclosed upon uh, way back when by a life insurance company. Yes, that's true. Not to be confused with uh, the threat of foreclosure by a more recent owner. <laughs> but we won't we won't go there. God, I can't help myself sometimes. Well, it's 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 the week of the Republican convention. Um, the the plaza now looks like a large French chateau. How is this? I mean, McKim, Mead, and White were were amazing architect. Was an amazing architectural firm. Um, why did the new owners decide on this new look? This this French chateau look. Well, the French chateau sort of evoking uh, the 16th century Francis I, who had. A lot of homes around France, one of them is now the Louvre, which gives you an idea of the grandiosity of it all. And uh, that was a very fashionable style. There are many buildings along Fifth Avenue, especially uh, along, along Fifth Avenue next to Central Park, that were in that style. So, um, you know, in America, we often try to outdo what's in Europe. And so the chateaus were load-bearing walls. The walls held up the building. But in 1889, New York gets its first building where the walls don't hold up the building, but steel girders do. So the 18-story uh, 1907 plaza looks like a French chateau, but it's considerably bigger, higher than French chateaus are, and it's held up by steel. So it's also a skyscraper. What was the public reception like for the new structure when it went up? Well, they were quite amazed because it was the most expensive building that had ever been built in New York. Almost everything inside was marble, and it was very thick, gorgeous, imported from France marble. 59th Street at that time was the original entrance, and people came in their carriages, <coughs> pardon me, and walked through <coughs> past the great marble uh, desk 
and uh, were amazed at how it looked. So it was very well received. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours about the famed Plaza Hotel on 59th Street in Central Park South. We'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com special program, a special edition of Rediscovering New York about New York's famed hotels. I call them New York's New York-centric hotels. Uh, we talked about the Waldorf story in the first part of the show, and now we're at the Plaza. Uh, my guest talking about the Plaza is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce, one of the things that I really love about your business and that I admire about it is the amount of new content that you keep coming up with and the amount of new tours. Um, unfortunately, um, like many of your, your co-tour directors, you've, you've had to put um, your business on hold because of the pandemic. But what what are some of the latest tours that you've been putting together that uh, we can expect to take advantage of when we can start congregating around each other again? Well, I just put together a tour of the West 70s in the Upper West Side, and I found all kinds of interesting things about it. I love to design tours because I learn so much, and it's fun to make connections with things that I already know. Well, it sounds like a great tour for us to to partner on again when we uh, when we resume uh, a, a touring. Um, what is your website? My website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. and my email is Joyce at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. I am giving private tours these days because. Although I do a lot of tours of large groups, these days it's mostly one or two couples that want mm. to be taken around with uh, you know, social distancing and masks. But um, it's, it's, it gets very personal and it's sort of the sign of the comeback of the city, I'd say. Mm. My public tours, which are just show up on a Sunday or Saturday, 
and I'll give a tour of a prearranged neighborhood, those will start sometime next year. But your listeners can get on my mailing list and will be able to uh, find out about both types of tours I do when they're available. And you also have an Instagram account. I do. It's Joyce Gold History Tours. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, getting back to the plaza, I want to talk about some of the first of the plaza. But first, I want to talk about some of the people who actually lived there. It wasn't just uh, a place where people stayed when they were in New York. It actually had some pretty famous residents over the years. Exactly. And, you know, when it first opened, 90% of the people who stayed there were permanent residents. Uh, for example, the very first guy who checked in as fast as he could had been brought up right across the street in the largest home ever built in Manhattan, the 153-room mansion of the favorite grandson of Commodore Vanderbilt. So Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt moved in with his, I think not with his wife because they were on the outs at the time, but with his servant, and he stayed there for quite a long time. Uh, Solomon Guggenheim stayed there, and Frank Lloyd Wright stayed there in the 1950s while he was designing the Guggenheim Museum for Solomon Guggenheim. Well, let's talk about some of the firsts that the plaza had as a hotel. What were some of the, the things that people back then might have been more impressed with and that we certainly would still be impressed with today, having heard about the plaza, having, having created those things and done those things? Yeah, well, there were just very beautiful rooms. There was a men's grill that's now called the Edwardian Room. There was the men's bar, which is now called the, um, the Oak Bar. And these were very new kinds of things. They had a couple of restaurants at the southeast corner, one for res permanent residents, one for others. And uh, during Prohibition in the 1920s, it was turned into a, a Studebaker car showroom, of all things, and then became something very famous, the Persian Room, with incredible performers displaying their talents to the public. How did they get cars in? Did they have to take part of the facade off to get, or did they disassemble them and assemble them? I didn't know that about the plaza. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> well, some of the famous people who sang in the Persian Room, Josephine Baker, Eartha Kitt, Liza, Lena Horne, Marlena Dietrich, Ethel Merman, Shirley Bassey, Andy Williams, Patty Page, and Peggy Lee. And yeah, uh, the guard uh, was the famous Chanteuse who was there as well. Hmm. And of course, Shirley Bassey is still is is still with us. Um, it, you know, I was lucky enough to have been to to many parts of the plaza. I never dined in the Edwardian Room, but of course, like many people, marveled in the Palm Court. Um, spent uh, uh, a number of evenings in the uh, in the Oak Room Bar, which was purportedly to be sort of a quiet gay bar back in the day. I remember there were a lot of uh, uh, men who would go there. Um, and also the Oyster Bar, which which was on the lower level, which 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 was a lot of fun, and hopefully will still be there. Um, the hotel was bought in 1988 by Donald Trump, um, who was a real estate magnate in New York before he became president, and his wife Ivana was installed as its president. Um, it sort of um, uh, presaged the what happened at the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, he put together a plan to sell uh, some of the – they had a, a renovation to sell some off his condos, um, but maybe not in too uh, un-Trumpian form. They couldn't support the debt, and creditors led by Citibank agreed to write down a quarter of a billion dollars in loans for a 49% stake. 
in what was known as a pre-packaged bankruptcy in 1992. Um, and it was also right in the middle of his bankruptcies in Atlantic City casinos. There were five of them, by the way, plus the plaza. That makes a total of six. Um, what Joyce, what are some of the more famous uh, uh, representations and things culturally that have happened in the plaza over the years? Popular culture, movies, things like that. Well, there, it's one of the most movied places in town. They say there are over three dozen major films. And a lot of them were in the 70s or earlier. For example, my personal favorite, 1959, North by Northwest, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. And it begins with Cary Grant going into the plaza. The background music was, it's a most unusual day. And then he is mistaken for a spy in the oak room and is taken away and gets on to, hides from the police until he can get out of town. Uh, so that's one. Plaza Suite came out in 1971, about three couples who all used Suite 719. Uh, there was the three-dimensional tour uh, a movie of The Great Gatsby that came out in 74 with Robert Redford and Mia Farrow. Uh, it wasn't uh, very well-received. The Way We Were came out in 1974. Crocodile Dundee stayed there. Home Alone 2 Lost in New York was there. In fact, it was so successful that the plaza offered packages for children uh, and their parents in uh, to sort of make the most of having been in that film. Well, speaking of children, we can't visit the plaza without talking about probably its most famous character over the years, Eloise. Right. Who was Eloise? Who was Eloise? When, when did she show up in our culture? And well, in the 1950s, she was, uh, well, let me go back to the uh, Persian room. Kay Thompson was one of the singers at the Persian room, and she liked to speak with a very childlike voice. A friend of hers worked at Harper's uh, Publishing Company and said, you should really write a book about that. So she wrote about Eloise, a six-year-old who lived at the top floor of the Plaza Hotel with her nanny and did things that, you know, good children are not supposed to do, but uh, she got away with it. For example, she liked to call the uh, room service and have them uh, press, wash and press her sneakers, for example. <laughs> and this was another character that the uh, hotel took advantage of because they put together for a while the Eloise room. And when young children came to the Eloise room, they would always be told, oh, sorry, you just missed her. She's putting water down the mail chute right now. <laughs> so they made the most of it. And uh, that was that was uh, important enough to the hotel that Kate Thompson had a free suite. But then I believe it was the Weston Hotels at one point took over the hotel in the 70s. And times were kind of tough. And they told her that she had to pay for her suite. Well, she left the hotel. She removed everything that she had the rights to for Eloise. But the only thing that remains is the portrait of Eloise because she didn't own that. That was the property and still is the property. I think he's in his 90s now of um, the illustrator, the, the man who illustrated both her book, her Eloise books, and who drew the portrait. But the plaque that tells you that it's Eloise has been removed but everybody knows who it is. This is actually the second Eloise portrait on the site because in the 1960s, there was some kind of college night 
and the painting mysteriously disappeared and um, it had to be redone. And you're looking at the second one now. Oh, wow. And of course, another famous party that happened in the 60s was when Truman Capote hosted his famed black and white party in That's honor of Catherine Graham. Well, yes, it was supposed to be in honor of her, the publisher of the Washington Post. But some say it was really in honor of his blockbuster uh, uh, new book, In Cold Blood. And in fact, he paid for this event to which 500 people appeared with the proceeds of that book. Uh, it was famous. Uh, everything had to be, you had to come in a mask, you had to come in a costume, and black and white were the only colors these things could be in. And 500 people came. Uh, apparently, they say that people who were not invited left town because it was too shameful not to have <laughs> invited to this. But um, Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow were there and uh, dressed, they were dressed as cats, apparently. And uh, Norman Mailer and literary figures were there. Andy Warhol was there. It was very famous for being a very eclectic mix of New Yorkers. And the plaza has been part of the eclectic history of New York and part of the amazing history of New York. Joyce Gold, thank you so much for being our guest on this program about New York's iconic hotels. Joyce has been regaling us with the history and stories of the Plaza Hotel. Uh, you can find out about Joyce's tours and read about her programming at Joyce Gold's JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce, thanks for being on the program again. Thank you, if you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Mark Maiman and Freedom Mortgage and the Law Offices of Thomas Siaka. One more thing before we sign off. I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for the program and our first guest tonight is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. 
Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 